All right, well, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're thankful for today, thankful for this morning. Thankful, to, thankful for the freedom that we have, uh, not only in Christ, but even politically and legally to be able to meet in freedom. That's a privilege that we have that many people around the world don't have, and we try not to take that for granted. I do specifically pray this morning that as we open your word, both in Sunday school and in the main service and enjoy communion together, specifically pray for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit, whereby the Spirit takes the deep things of God and makes them applicable and known to us. In a room like this, and even as this goes out onto social media and the internet, it's impossible for a human teacher to grasp the full level of need that's out there, but you know it. And I do pray, Lord, that you would take your word today and apply it to the deepest needs of your people We pray for what Jesus promised in the upper room, that the Spirit would come and guide us into all truth. And so to prepare for that ministry, Lord, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do personal confession to you, if need be, not to restore our position, but sometimes we can damage our fellowship with you enjoyment of you, which inhibits our ability to receive from you. So we'll take a few moments now to do that. We're thankful, Lord, today, as we celebrate the Lord's table, for your comprehensive um, provision to us, which gives us our standing in grace before you, a position that can't be altered, and also your provision for us is so comprehensive that you even, through passages like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, um, provide for the restoration of fellowship. We do ask, Lord, that everything that happens today at Sugarland Bible Church, from, from opening till closing, all the children's classes that are meeting right now, um, that everything would be done in a way that's glorifying to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. amen. Well, come on, everybody. Come on in, I should say, everybody. Um, There's a little booklet back there called The Falling Away that I wrote, and you sort of need that for the study that we're going to start today. We have limited supplies, unfortunately, so if we could just limit it one per domicile. (laughs) So if you don't have one of those booklets, could you put your hand up? And Brother Jim will come around and give you a handout. Handout is not financial. (laughs) 
So we've got keep those hands up. We need to see some lactic acid build up in those hands and arms. He's coming, and we here we got we're dividing the effort. Comes Martin. So with all of that being said, let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 3. Um, we are bringing up this subject, not just out of the clear blue, but it comes as a result of our verse-by-verse study through the Thessalonian letters. And so this is where we are in our study, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. As we're going to see, one of the more controversial passages of the Bible, that's why we're taking our time with it. Paul the Apostle writes, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, it is the day of the Lord, It will not come unless the apostasy, uh, the Greek word there is apostasia, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So, you know, as you know from our study of the two Thessalonian books, which were written back to back in close proximity to each other, Paul the Apostle planted the church at Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. The background for that is Acts 17 and into chapter 18. He was pushed out of Thessalonica up north, down south to Corinth. And it's from Corinth that very, very quickly, so this is not like Philippians where there's 10 years between the planning of the church and when Paul wrote to the church. Uh, There's not 10 years here. There's probably no more than six months to a year here where Paul the Apostle writes to the church that he just planted. And he writes the two Thessalonian books back to back to deal with their eschatological prophetic uh, questions. Question number one was, Paul, you taught us about the rapture, but we've had our, some of our loved ones die. Loved ones in Christ die. Are they going to participate in this rapture that you taught us about? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked that, and he answers that question in 1 Thessalonians. He says, yes, the rapture begins with the dead in Christ. The resurrection program begins with the dead in Christ. Second issue is, uh, Paul, we just got a forged letter indicating that we're in the day of the Lord. We just got a forged letter indicating that the day of the Lord or the tribulation period has started. What's the deal, Paul? Paul says, I'm glad you asked, and he writes 2 Thessalonians to answer that second question. So the problem of the letter is stated there in verses 1 and 2. 
If you go back to verse 2, you see why he's penning this letter. He says that you not be quickly shaken, and the word for shaken there is a Greek word that's used elsewhere, Acts 16, for a physical earthquake. So a theological and emotional earthquake had gone off in Thessalonica in the church. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by either spirit or message or letter as if from us, meaning they got a forgery, to the effect that the day of the Lord, which in prior studies we've explained is the tribulation period, that the day of the Lord has come. So they thought they were in the middle of the tribulation period. And it shook them because Paul taught them that they would escape the tribulation period in the first letter. And the fact that they're shaken proves that he taught them that. Because if he didn't teach them that, they wouldn't be shaken. See that? They'd be like, all right, thumbs up, here we go. But they're bothered by this. So Paul had taught them, you will escape the tribulation period, and here comes this forgery, which they didn't know was a forgery, as if from Paul saying, no, you're inside the tribulation period. So that's the problem, verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 12, he says, you're not in the tribulation period because the prerequisites for the day of the Lord aren't happening right now. And he lays out five things. The apostasy or departure. The advent of the lawless one in the temple. And it's kind of interesting. He's writing this 20 years roughly, a little less, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So he makes reference to that temple and he says, you haven't seen the Antichrist in that temple. That's number two. Number three, the restrainer hasn't been removed. Number four, you haven't seen the destruction of the Antichrist, who's going to be overthrown with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. You haven't seen that yet. And then number five, you haven't seen the destruction of the Antichrist followers. So only when all five things happen in convergence, in concurrence, in concert, can anybody officially say that they're inside the day of the Lord or the tribulation period? And this is very helpful today because there are many, many people arguing that we're in the tribulation period now. And you answer them the same way you answer, the same way Paul answered them. You don't see these five things yet, do you? So what we're doing is we're walking through these five things, and the fir- it just so happens that the first one mentioned is the most controversial. The apostasy, uh, Greek apostasia, the departure, hasn't happened yet. And last time I was showing you that there are probably two major views on this, um, The first view is this is some kind of departure from the word. And it goes under different uh, rubrics, so to speak. Um, 
Some people think it's talking about the apostasy of the church doctrinally before the rapture. Other people think, no, it's talking about the apostasy of the unsaved world after the rapture. Other people say, no, it's talking about the apostasy of the nation of Israel when they enter the covenant with Antichrist, which starts the seven-year period. And in our last session together, I was trying to show you why none of of these are really all that satisfying. I I don't have time to repeat all the stuff we covered last time, but I would encourage you to listen to that. Because when you see how unsatisfying these options are, you start to seek some other solution to this. What is this apostasia, apostasy, what is it speaking of? Which takes us to the second view. Now, the first view is a majority view, and it's likely because of some translation problems, which I'll go into probably not today. Because of the English translation that you're using, most people have never been exposed to view number two. View number two is, this is not a departure from the word, this is a departure from the world. Meaning, it's a synonym for the rapture. So if that second view is right, Paul is just saying to this forgery, we're in the day of the Lord, he's saying, wait a minute now, has the departure, i.e. the rapture, which I already told you about, has that happened yet? Well, obviously not, because you're still here. You haven't departed yet. Because chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians 4 comes before chapter 5. Can I get an amen on that? Chapter 4, rapture. Chapter 5, day of the Lord. So he's giving a chronology. Because the rapture hasn't happened first, you could not be in the day of the Lord. That's his simple point. If view number two is right, this is not a departure from the word. This is a departure from the world. So in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy or the departure comes first. Notice the word first. That's why this thing has become such a big deal. And there's many people out there fighting tooth and nail to make sure the public, Christian public, never becomes aware of this interpretation I'm giving you. Because if the Christian public ever bought into this interpretation I'm giving you, if the departure from the world must come first... That means the rapture has to happen first. Amen? (laughs) It means it has to happen before the tribulation period. In other words, it's game, set, match for pre-tribulationalism. Pre-tribulationalism, the view up top there, the rapture happens before the tribulation. Mid-tribulationalism, the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation period. Post-tribulationalism, The rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period. Pre-wrath, which is very deceptive and misnamed. Um, The rapture can't happen until three quarters of the tribulation period elapse. That's the discussion. 
And pre-tribulationalism makes sense when you look at the totality of biblical evidence. But if this particular view that we're describing here is true, then no longer do you have to look at the totality of biblical evidence. All you do is look at one verse. The departure, physical departure from the world, happens, what's the adjective there? First, proton, meaning all of this debate that people are having for the last, I don't know, 150, 200 years about the rapture when it happens is unneeded. So that's why there's almost like a um, invested interest into subverting the interpretation I'm going to give you here. That's why there's almost a, a interest by many people in shooting down anyone that would dare teach this. Anyone who dare teaches this must be crazy. They must be a non-scholar, etc., And so that's why I'm going through this with you carefully. That's why I wrote that little booklet that you guys now have. So this um, issue that really this is not a departure from the world, but it's it's a, excuse me, not a departure from the word, but a departure from the world, it's one of those things where a single argument doesn't seal the deal. You have to look at all 10 arguments cumulatively. And when you look at all 10 arguments cumulatively, as I was just talking with a brother earlier about legal standards, to win a case in civil court, you don't have to convince the jury 100%. All you have to do is tip the scales. 49% to 51% in your favor. If you do that, then you win your civil case. Now, a criminal case is um, a harder standard. It's a standard called beyond a reasonable doubt. And even with that standard, you don't have to convince people 100%. You just have to sort of tip the scales, let's say, 75% to 25%. So when I give you these 10 things, um, what I'm trying to do is just tip the scales in my direction. I'm not trying to prove something 100%. I'm just trying to demonstrate something that, in terms of probabilities. The probabilities, I think, are on the side of the physical departure view. So that's why I have five arguments Um, Here's the first five. Here's the next five. Ten total. And then, of course, is, well, wait a minute. You didn't deal with this objection. You didn't deal with that objection. Well, I will. Um, There's about six objections to this that people use. And I'll try to talk through through those. And obviously, I can't get to all this today. But at least you see the direction I'm going. I did write a little book about it. This book is not written for scholars. Um, This book is just written for people that are kind of on the fence about this. They don't know really what to make of it. I enumerate the ten reasons that I'm going to give you. You could sit down and you could read that booklet in one sitting. That's how short it is. Because sometimes it's, what do they say about Occam's razor? 
the, the simplest solution, you know, is really some t- a lot of times the right one. I mean, if I have to go on and on and on for a thousand pages trying to convince you of something, uh, chances are I'm trying to drown you in verbose writing. When the simplest cases, you don't have to do that. And so that's why I think this thing is, is not as complicated as everybody makes it. But people want it to be complicated because if it's true, pre-tribulationalism is a reality, theological reality. It's no longer an uncertainty in the minds of God's people. So when I got saved, I got very interested in prophecy and, you know, pre-tribulationalism, post-tribulationalism. I asked some of my spiritual mentors at the time, what is this all about? And they just gave me this answer. Well, you need to pray for pre and plan for post. (laughs) Which, like, is no answer at all. I mean, how... Pray for pre. Lord, please make it pre-trib rapture. But just in case, I've got my copper bullets and all the things I need to shoot down the Antichrist or whatever. Um, so I, I, was, I was taught that this is something you really can't under, understand or know. So I've, I've really given a lot of my attention in my ministry to explain to people that, no, this is actually a, a doctrine that you can develop certainty on. And this is something that you need in the last days because things in this country aren't going to get any easier. I think we would all agree with that. And if you have a confused eschatology, at some point you're going to think, well, we must be in the tribulation period as things in the country continue to deteriorate, as things around the world continue to deteriorate. So now is the time to really get settled on what God says. I mean, what has he promised? What has he not promised? So with all that being said, let me give you these 10 reasons. Um, The first of the 10 is that there have always been doctrinal departures. And since there's always been doctrinal departures, departures from the word, how could that be some kind of sign that you're in the tribulation period? I mean, doctrinal departures happen all of the time. Um, that's no front page news. How could that be some kind of definitive sign that you're in the tribulation period? I mean, why would Paul say the apostasy comes first if it's already been happening for 2,000 years? In fact, the first departure that you read about in the Bible doctrinally is in the Garden of Eden, right? Where the serpent beguiled our forebears. They ate, They departed from the word of God. I mean, Departures from God's word are all over the place in the Bible. Paul says departures from the word are going to be characteristic of the church age. And notice what he says here towards the end of missionary journey number three. In Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, where he summoned the leaders of the church at Ephesus at a port city called Miletus. And he says, for I know this, not I think this could happen. He says, I know this, that after my departure, his death, in other words, the death of the apostles, savage wolves, 
not might, but will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will arise up speaking perverse things. So that's a departure from the word within to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years. Sounds like he's pretty serious about the topic, by the way. I did not cease to admonish each of you to the point of tears. So Paul the Apostle said doctrinal departures would characterize the age of the church, and it would start lickety-split right after the uh, death of the Apostles. So if all of that is true, then how could yet another doctrinal departure be some kind of definitive sign that they were in the tribulation period? I mean, that would be no front page news whatsoever. In fact, during Paul's ministry, he watched massive doctrinal departures. This is what it says in Acts 19, verse 10. This was Paul at his highest point, I think, in terms of ministry success in Ephesus. Missionary journey number three. This is in a place called the School of Tyrannus in Ephesus, where, where everybody from Asia came and heard Paul teach. It was a lecturing <laughs> Uh, ministry. And that's how all those churches in that area got started. You know, all those churches that you read about in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, you wonder how all of those got their sea legs and got off the ground. It's related to what Paul did as a lecturer in the school of Tyrannus for three years. It says in Acts 19 verse 10, this took place for two years. So his stay in Ephesus was three years, but he was in the school of Tyrannus two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So fantastic. Talk about tremendous ministry success. That's why it's kind of shocking to see what he says later, just before he died. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, he says, You are aware of the fact that all (laughs) who are in Asia turned away from me. And then he mentions a couple people, Phagellus and Hermogenes. It's just an amazing thing he's saying here. Earlier in his ministry, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. End of his ministry, they all departed. They all doctrinally departed. So my point is, doctrinal departures happen all of the time. It happened to Paul. So how could that be another definitive sign that you're in the tribulation period? It just, it doesn't pass the smell test. There's one of the key churches during that time period was a church named Ephesus. You look at the pastors that Ephesus had, They had John, they had Paul, uh, they had Timothy, and it was really the the key church of the Greco-Roman world. And what did Jesus say to that church at the end of the first century? 
He says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but I have this against you that you have left. That's a doctrinal departure. That's a departure from the world. That you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand, your sphere of influence, in other words, out of its place unless you repent. So even Ephesus itself departed from the central teachings of Christianity. They departed from Christ. So this is an outworking of what Paul said would happen. After the apostles die, don't expect these churches to just keep, you know, functioning the way they're supposed to. They're going to depart. And so how would yet another doctrinal departure, given that history, be some kind of sign that you're in the end times? Doesn't make any sense. In fact, Paul, when he writes 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, the man of lawlessness hasn't showed up yet. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, long before the Antichrist shows up, the spirit of the Antichrist is going to be in the world. John, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, predicts the same thing. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard is coming, and now is already at work in the world. So before the Antichrist comes, the spirit of the Antichrist will be in the world. The spirit of the Antichrist will be in the church. So my point is, you know, hey, guys, you know, you, you know you're in the tribulation period when the doctrinal departure of the church happens. They would be kind of like yawning, you know. Yeah. That's my yawning impersonation. <laughs> it's like, so what? That happens every day. Um, here's some rules for a good Bible college. You should send your kids to this Bible college. (laughs) These are the rules given in 1626 for this Bible college. It says, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, verse 3. And therefore to lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning and seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Proverbs 2 and 3. Everyone shall exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein. Wow. Uh, great Bible college. Let me get my kids enrolled. And if you look carefully at the bottom, these were the rules of, of Harvard. I've got to bend down here to read, read this. 1636. Now, would you say Harvard has departed doctrinally? And I'm not trying to get too into politics, but I was listening to Alan Dershowitz um, not long ago, who's sort of a... Democrat, 
but he's a critic of all of the legal things that are being thrown at the uh, Tr- Donald Trump, the indictments. And I, was just, I always like listening to him talk because he's like what I would call an intellectually honest liberal. He says, I want Donald Trump's name on the ballot because I want to vote against him for the third time, is what he said. So he's not a big Trump guy, but he's saying, what's happening to the former president? I mean, they're just bending the law, you know, to destroy the man. And because he takes that position, he said he is not invited anymore to be a lecturer at Harvard University in the law school that he had spent decades and decades at. I mean, he can't even go anymore and give like a guest lecture or anything. So even in our own time period, I mean, we've watched Harvard depart from what it used to stand for. And if you go back to 1636, obviously Harvard, you know, is not the same place that it once was in terms of biblicism, respect for God's word. I mean, it's not even the same place politically, you know, that it used to be. And so my point is, this is an outworking of what Paul said would happen. He said, when I leave, which is shortly, the time of my departure is at hand, savage wolves are going to come in. And then he says, even from your own number, men are going to rise up, they're going to speak perverse things in an attempt to draw away disciples after themselves. So if this is normative in the age of the church, in fact, if this is normative going all the way back to Genesis 3, the idea that Paul is saying you're not in the tribulation period because the doctrinal departure of the church hasn't happened yet, that would be no definitive sign because that happens every day. Dr. Henry Morris in his Defender's Study Bible on this verse says, over the 1,950 years since Paul wrote these lines, there have been numerous great apostasies from the faith. And none of these introduce the day of the Lord. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, longtime prophecy teacher, now with the Lord, in his uh, prophetic prospective daily devotional, he says if the word apostasia was communicating that, apo- that, that apostasy was what it was talking about, then the coming of the Antichrist would have happened during the writing of Second Thessalonians. Apostasy has infiltrated the church by the time Paul wrote this passage. That's his point. And I'm, as I go through this, I'm going to be quoting people that hold to the same view I hold, or maybe it's more respectful for me to say I hold to their view rather than they hold to my view. Because uh, what the propaganda machine on this is so intense, uh, people think that this is some way out interpretation no one ever thought this before. And I'm going to show you very good person after very good person that holds to the spatial, physical departure view. So the first reason why I don't think, why I think the physical departure view is right and the departure from the word is wrong is there have always been doctrinal departures. So how could that be a definitive sign of the end times? Or the day of the Lord. 
The second reason is that 2 Thessalonians was a very early letter. It's hard to emphasize that enough. Paul wrote 13 letters. And there's, there they are. There are the dates they came into existence. And I just want you to see that the Thessalonian letters, 2 Thessalonians, is only letter number 3. The only letters they had before this were 1 Thessalonians, uh, potentially they had Galatians, they may have had some kind of knowledge of Matthew's gospel, which is church history has said that's the first gospel that was written. They may have had the book of James, which was very early. But other than that, there's no Corinthian books, there's no Romans books, there's no prison epistles, pastoral epistles, there's no First Peter, Second Peter, there's no First, Second, and Third John, there's no Jude. There's no book of Revelation. And so what you're dealing with is Paul is writing very, very early in his ministry, and you have to figure out what was Paul dealing with early in his ministry? What was the number one subject on his mind? Don't go to some later writing, uh, more than a decade later, and read that back into what he's dealing with early on. Beyond that, the Thessalonian letters, there's a very small amount of time in between the planting of the church and the first letter or letters to the church. My point is, yes, Paul does predict the doctrinal defection of the church. Yes, he does predict as he gets old and gets ready to die that as you move to the end of the church age, the church will start to run off the rails doctrinally. It will depart from the word. He does deal with that. But he deals with that late. He deals with that real late in his ministry. He's not dealing with it here because now we're early in his ministry. Um... Probably the first time I can think about when Paul really starts to say, you know what, as we get closer to the end of the age, the the church is going to go from bad to worse. The first time he even brings up the topic and makes a bold prediction like that, to my mind, is in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, which I read to you a little bit later, uh, a little earlier. And that's at the end of his third missionary journey. I mean, that's late, late in his ministry. Now, early in his ministry, he does talk about apostasies happening on his watch. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He does talk about that, but he doesn't make a prediction that related to the end times, the church will wander from the word. He deals with that late, though, in his ministry. Um, By the time you get to the Timothy letters, that's what he's talking about. By the time you get to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, that's what he's talking about. He says this, 
very late in his ministry. But the Spirit explicitly says, meaning the Holy Spirit is trying to say something to me. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, that would be towards the end of the church age, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There he uses the verbal form of, a, of a apostasia. Apostasia, noun form, is what we're dealing with. Here he uses aphistomy, which is the verb coming from the same root. And... I'm going to mention this a lot later, but here, just tuck this into your memory banks. You'll notice that to get the sentence to work, he has to toss in the prepositional phrase, from the faith. Do you see that? But the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Why does he feel impelled to say, from the faith? Because the verb and the noun don't always mean the same thing everywhere they're used. The verb and the noun are non-technical words, meaning they don't mean the same thing everywhere they're used. So how do you tell what its meaning is? The context will tell you. He's clearly dealing with doctrinal defection here, and he's dealing with that late in his ministry, but just to make sure people get the point, he has to toss in the descriptive phrase from the faith. Because if he just said, fall away, the audience wouldn't know what he's talking about. Fall away from the word or fall away from the world? Well, in this case, it's fall away from the word. And just to get the point across, I'm going to add the expression from the faith. And by the way, I'm not even talking about it until the end of my ministry. What we're dealing with in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 is the beginning of Paul's ministry. Are there prophecies about the doctrinal defection of the church in the last days? Of course there are. You're looking at one of them right there. Jot down 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. In A.D. 67. What we're talking about is A.D. 51. Jot down Peter's prophecies. 2 Peter 2 verses 1 through 3. That's in A.D. 64 Peter says that. We're talking about A.D. 51 here. Jude talks about it. Jude verses 3 and 4. Jude verses 7 through 12. But that's A.D. 68 to 70. We're not in A.D. 68 to 70 in our passage. We're in A.D. 51. So my point is this idea that he's talking about a doctrinal defection of the church in the last days is a subject that Paul himself is not dealing with early in his ministry. First and Second Thessalonians do not mention apostasy as a gradual process at the end of the church age. Timothy does, the Timothy letters, but that's late in Paul's ministry. We're dealing with something early in Paul's ministry. 
And because people are not doing the proper sorting of Paul's letters, they're forcing Paul to talk about something that he doesn't want to talk about. It's like a lot of sermons that you hear today in modern Christianity. You hear the sermon and you say, well, that's a great sermon, but I don't really see it in the passage. I wish the preacher had used this other passage over here that is dealing with that subject. In other words, um, you make Paul start giving dire warnings about the doctrinal drift of the church in the last days. There's wonderful verses you could use to explain that. But you can't use 2 Thessalonians to do that any more than you can use 1 Thessalonians to do that because Paul is not talking about that. What he's talking about over and over again is the return of Jesus. Uh, a little bit more on that, a little more on that a little later. The third reason why I don't think this is some, something about the departure from the word, but rather it's a departure from the world, is the definite article in front of the word apostasia. Look again at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure or apostasy comes first. He doesn't say apostasy. He says the apostasy. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Now watch Paul's use of the definite article in the same verse. Watch this carefully. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And what's the next word? The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Notice he uses the definite article, the, the, in front of both the noun apostasia, and also in front of the man of lawlessness. So whatever you're doing with the man of lawlessness, you have to do with the departure. You can't say, well, the apostasy is some kind of gradual thing, but the coming of the man of lawlessness is instantaneous. The repetition of the definite article will not allow you to do that. So if you can figure out how fast the Antichrist comes, you can figure out how fast the departure comes. In other words, the apostasy must be as specific and time-bound and instantaneous as is the advent of the Antichrist. How fast is the Antichrist going to come upon the scene? I think very, very fast. The scripture says he, Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with many, Israel, for one week. He shows up, boom, the covenant is entered into, just like that, and the seven-year count starts. The event which will begin this seven-year count is a covenant between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. That's not a long, gradual process. That's something that happens in a moment of time. 
it happens commensurate with the first seal judgment. Jesus is in heaven, Revelation 6, opening a seven-sealed scroll. And as he is op- as he's peeling back the seals and the scroll is opening, just like that, instantaneously, judgments are hitting planet Earth. And the very first seal that he pulls back is the rider on the white horse, which I believe is the Antichrist for a lot of reasons. And the Antichrist comes forward very, very quickly. The first seal judgment commensurate with the first birth pang. The first seal judgment very, very early on. The Antichrist comes forward, and just like that, he enters into this peace treaty with Israel, and the seven-year count begins. In other words, my point is, when you're looking at these eschatological or prophetic subjects, they don't lend themselves to a long, gradual process. And I'm here to tell you that apostasy, if it's doctrinal, apostasies don't happen just like that. Harvard's movement away from doctrinal truth, that didn't happen instantaneously. That was transgenerational. And we have to go back all the way to 1636 to see where it started. It didn't happen overnight. Apostasies never do. The church at Ephesus, when it departed... Jesus in the book of Revelation saying, you've left your first love. How long did that take? I mean, was that like 24 hours? Was that a nanosecond? No, that's not the nature of doctrinal apostasies. This took place over at least 35 years. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Ephesus has a paper trail. One of your books in your Bible is the letter to the Ephesians, written to the same crowd. Ephesians, written in the early 60s, the book of Revelation, written A.D. 95. You're dealing with over 30 years between Ephesians that Paul wrote to in one of his prison letters, and then the church that Jesus spoke to, same church, 35 years later. The reason I know that is because I've read the book of Ephesians. And never once does Paul say, hey, you guys have left your first love. Never says that at all. So therefore, something happened after Paul left the scene by the time Christ addressed the church in the book of Revelation. They had doctrinally apostatized. But it didn't happen overnight. It took 35 years. See that? That's the nature of apostasies. Doctrinal, doctrinal apostasies in our personal lives, in our churches, in our institutions are typically a prolonged, gradual process. So here is my basic problem that I'm having with this doctrinal departure view. The, the repetition of the definite article. If the coming of the man of lawlessness is instantaneous 
and whatever you're doing with the man of lawlessness, you also have to do with the apostasy. Because the definite article is repeated. If the coming of the man of lawlessness is instantaneous, how can you turn around right in the middle of the verse and make the first noun with the use of the definite article something gradual and prolonged? See how that doesn't make sense? This is, this is the way people want it to read. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy by definition, gradual, prolonged, comes first, and the man of lawlessness, instantaneous, is revealed. In other words, what you've done is you put into the same verse internal inconsistency. Doesn't a rapture interpretation fit that better? Can't the apostasy be the rapture? Can't the departure be not from the word, which is gradual, but from the world, which is instantaneous? Well, how do you know the rapture is instantaneous? (laughs) Because that's how Paul describes it elsewhere. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. How long does it take you to blink your eye? I mean, that's just a split second. In fact, when he's describing the rapture elsewhere, he says it's going to happen in a moment. The English word moment is a translation from the word in Greek, atomos, where we get the word what? Atom. What's an atom? An atom is something so tiny you can't divide it. In fact, if you divide it, Albert Einstein, you get a nuclear explosion. You cannot divide it. That's the speed in which the rapture will occur. In other words, when I get my resurrected body, it's not going to be like, okay, Jesus is not going to say to me, okay, let's, let's try on the feet first and see how they work. How did that, it's like going to the shoe store. Let's try some different sizes. How does your arms feeling, you know? Let's try the arm first. Let's put the arm on first. You're going to get your resurrected body just like that. So that fits the context of the passage a lot better than making the Antichrist instantaneous, but the apostasy gradual, which is the nature of apostasies. The rapture, when it takes place, will take place in the twinkling of an eye, in the flash, flash, or a moment, in a split second. Moment, as we said earlier, is Greek. It's where we get the word Adam from in English, which is something so fast it cannot be divided. My fourth reason why I think apostasia is talking about a departure from the world, not from the word, is the noun apostasia in Greek can mean a physical departure. Now, what everybody does is they say, no, 
This is a departure from the word, not a departure from the world. Why do they get that? They say, let's look at the only other time the noun apostasia is used in Scripture. And it's only used twice. It's used right here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. And the only other time the noun, I'm not talking about the verb, but the noun is used is in Acts 21, verse 21. And in Acts 21, 21, it says this. They have been told about you, and this isn't even Paul speaking. This is someone criticizing Paul. They have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake, apostasia, Moses. So the criticism brought against Paul is that you are teaching everyone to doctrinally depart from the law of Moses. And so what they say is, well, if that's what it means over there, that's what it means right here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. That's sort of the the logic that, that people go through on this. I'm here to tell you that that's no way to interpret a word. You don't interpret a word by how it's used in a foreign context. Because the word could mean something spatial or physical. Well, how how do you know that? I know that because of Liddell and Scott. Liddell and Scott wrote about classical Greek And so you kind of have to look at the eras of Greek writing. There's the classical period. There's the Koine period in which the Bible was written in. And then there's the patristic period after the close of the New Testament in the church fathers. Here in classical Greek, Liddell and Scott, it mentions the different definitions for the noun apostasia, And you'll notice that the first um, three are talking about doctrinal. The last two are talking about something physical. So the first three is apostasia, classical Greek, can mean rebellion against God, apostasy, departure. But it can also mean, look at this, disappearance. Doesn't that sound like the rapture? Distance. Doesn't that sound like the rapture? And I've tried to listen as open-mindedly as I can to people who reject the physical departure view, and they'll say something like this. Well, you know, the example that Liddell and Scott use is just talking about steam departing from hot liquid. And I'm like thinking... I think that makes my case. I mean, does steam doctrinally depart? I mean, look at your cup of coffee tomorrow morning and watch the steam come off it. It's not doctrinally departing. It's physically departing. See that? Just like the rapture. And then you go to Lamp's uh, patristic Greek lexicon. 
Now this is dealing with not the classical period, not the Koine period, but the church fathers period. And it mentions, when you look up apostasia there, it mentions different definitions. The last three, in my mind, are talking about something physical. The first three are spiritual, revolt, defection, apostasy from paganism, Judaism, Christianity, orthodoxy. But the last three, look at these definitions. Divorce. I mean, when two people get divorced, don't they physically separate? Departure. Standing aloof. Those are, those are physical things. Now, Dr. Wayne House says something very important here. He says, the noun form allows for apostasia as a simple departure in the classical period proved by examples from Liddell and Scott. If one says that this is not important because the meaning is only classical or ancient and thus lost its meaning by the time of the New Testament, then I may turn to the same root meaning of apostasia in the patristic era immediately following the New Testament. Because this is what they do. They say, give me an example of apostasia meaning something physical from the Koine period. Well, can I quote the classical period? Nope. Can I quote the patristic period? Nope. Give me just something from the Koine period. But here's what Wayne House is saying. If a word has a meaning in the classical period, before the New Testament started, and it has the same meaning in the patristic period, after the New Testament age ended, who in their right mind would say it lost its meaning in between? It's like the magic bullet theory. Here's the meaning, disappears, and then reappears. I've never known a word to do that. Have a meaning, lose a meaning, and then regain a meaning. That's what Wayne House is saying here. Then I may turn to the same root meaning of apostasia in the patristic period immediately following the New Testament as indicated in the definitions of the noun form in Lamp's patristic Greek lexicon. Although the noun used in the sense of spatial departure is not the normal meaning during New Testament times, the word is found within this meaning in the time period just before classical period. And after, patristic period, the New Testament era. And it's likely to have been understood this way in the Koine period, at least at times. That's, that's his point. By the way, when you, and I'm getting ready to finish here, believe it or not, but I need to get through this last little part here. Um, when you go to Matthew 5, verse 32 where Jesus is talking about divorce. He says this, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now you can see the word for divorce there is not exactly the same word as apostasia, but it's a highly related word. It's just spelled a little differently. 
And Jesus uses that word when he's talking about sending your wife away. That's physical, isn't it? Via a divorce. The word apostasia, the only thing it means, and this is very important to understand, is it just means departure. It's a compound word, meaning two words making up a single word. It comes from the preposition apos, away from, and it comes from the verb histomy, to stand. You put those two words together, you get apostasia in Greek, and it literally means to stand away from. It means to depart. That's all it means. Departure from what? Departure from something doctrinal or departure from something physical? How would I figure that out? The context tells me. Context is king. The three rules of real estate are location, location, location. The three rules of Bible study are context, context, context. If the word can go either direction, and it can, you, you don't run to some part of Paul's writings where he's dealing with another topic and read that meaning into your present context. If the word can go either way, and I think I've tried to demonstrate that it can, then the context controls. If it's a doctrinal departure passage, then you go with the meaning of departure from the word. If it's a rapture context, then you go with the meaning of departure from the the world. The word, here's where it gets tricky, the word apostasy in English basically means the same thing. It means doctrinal defection. But that is not what it means in Greek. It just means departure. In which case you say departure from what? That's why Paul, when he uses the verb in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, ephistomy, but the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. Why would he have to throw the expression from the faith into the mix? Because the word in verbal form and in noun form doesn't always mean the same thing. Are you with me? So he has to explain what it is he's talking about. And see, this is the mental exercise that people aren't going through. They're just grabbing some meaning to the word elsewhere, and they're reading it into our present context. And so, that's a lot of information, isn't it? Why do I favor the physical departure view? Because there have always been doctrinal departures. Number two, 2 Thessalonians was an early letter where Paul wasn't even dealing with doctrinal departures in the end times. Number three, there's a definite article in front of the noun apostasia. So whatever you're doing with Antichrist, by definition, you have to do with apostasia, which favors something instantaneous like the rapture, not something gradual. And then the noun form can be used either way. And so what controls is the immediate context that you're working in. And folks, we're just getting warmed up here.
So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word. Help us to think correctly about a vital last day subject. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Happy intermission.